0: You're listening to Podmo, the number one network that brings you the best story-driven content out there.
1: So let's get real, y'all. We're fortunate to have the ability to communicate and share our amazing health tips and advice with you and be part of your journey as you reach your optimal fitness goals. And one of the reasons we're able to have such a great platform is our advertisers. Part of the reasons they love us and we love them is that they know the show has amazing listeners. That's right, you guys. We've got a survey I'd love for you guys to take five minutes filling out, which helps us learn more about who you guys are. Just go to podsurvey.com health. You can also enter a monthly drawing to win a $100 Amazon gift card. And with that, you can do whatever your health nut heart desires. We'll ask questions about you and your buying habits, but your answers are completely anonymous. All of your answers will help us find advertisers that are uniquely matched to you, your interests, and the show. Even if you've taken a podcast listener survey like this before, I'd love to ask you to take ours. Did I mention you could win $100? So go to podsurvey.com health so we can keep making our show great. We're here today with Major League Baseball health expert Mike Reinold. The kinetic forces required to throw a baseball. A Major League pitcher's arm moves at 23 rotations per second routinely rip apart the structures designed to keep the shoulder together. Baseball teams often consult with multiple orthopedists and radiologists in an attempt to reach a consensus. One of the main people they consult is Mike Reinold. Could you introduce yourself to those who don't know you yet?
0: Sure, yeah. Um and likewise, um yeah, we've we've been talking for several years now, I think, um going back and forth obviously, um, you know, have a great deal of respect for what you, you're building over there with all your different websites and uh, great resources for the profession. So, um thanks and thanks for having me. I think this is um, you know, it's an honor to be involved with with such a great group of people. So, thanks. So, Um, Myself, I'm a a physical therapist. I'm also an athletic trainer and a uh, certified strength and conditioning coach um, in the United States um, based out of Boston, Massachusetts. Um, So I work primarily as a physical therapist, but um, essentially, what we've done is we've opened up a um, a uh, physical therapy and performance center where we integrate the two and, and put it together. And really, what we're doing is we're we're trying to work with people um, that are trying to get the most out of their bodies. So they're trying to optimize themselves. Um, so you know, it's funny we started doing that for the professional athlete model, and I think that's the one that everybody gets, where they get the you know the, the best combination of of multiple domains of profession that kind of come together and collaborate to uh, help them. Uh, optimize their athletic performance but um, wh- why wouldn't we do that for everybody right you want to have optimal performance too so uh, maybe your performance is uh, a little different than uh, somebody that plays a professional sport but really it should be the same thing so um, right absolutely so I, and you know what I mean I have a lot of amateur people that want even more out of their body than some of the professional athletes that I, that I work with. So, um, you know, so what we're trying to do is actually just put that integrated system together. So um, we started our practice, it's called Champion Physical Therapy and Performance in Boston, and it's, um, it's really where we kind of blend our, our, our physical therapy and manual therapy techniques and our, our performance and fitness concepts into, into one big package.
1: Were you a physical therapist or an athletic trainer first?
0: Um, so I went to physical therapy school. It's actually a, a long story, but it's I went to physical therapy school. But this is back in the '90s when we uh, we actually um, we had the ability to to become an athletic trainer um, because we took so many of the the same classes. So we just had to um, take any classes that we missed and then um, do a lot of hours. I think I had to do like fifteen hundred hours in an athletic training situation and then sit for the board. So um, that route no longer exists. To get certified that way, but we you could do that 20 years ago. Um, so um, I was a physical therapist, and then in tandem was kind of working to become an athletic trainer at the same time.
1: So the athletic training was part of the curriculum.
0: There's just a lot of overlap between the two professions, so I had to take—I um, think I took two extra classes. That's it. So in our in our PT curriculum, it was essentially um, you know, but you know, some more, but you know, you know, different. And then we took like I literally had to take like Intro to Athletic Training and you know the the basics to you know cover um, you know the first aid, the emergency response, the stuff that the physical therapists and the physios don't do as much um, you know as the the acute you know how do you handle something that happens right away and really triage the medical emergency and figure out what to do
1: that's interesting because universities are just integrating an exercise qualification into their physiotherapy degree we were just talking about how we're all pigeonholed into specialties was it your experience in major league baseball that focused you more on shoulder related injuries
0: i guess that's i mean i I guess it just comes down to what you um I think what you like and what you're passionate about, and then the the group of people that you tend to uh, work with the most. So I, I work with a lot of overhead athletes and baseball pitchers, you know, specifically, but a lot of overhead athletes. So obviously they're upper extremity injury based things, and um, you, you you end up uh, you end up using kind of the same skill sets that you use, you know, for for that population on several other people. So um, you know, I guess when you just like a certain topic, you tend to write more about it, you tend to publish more about it, you tend to speak. More more about it. Um, And it's funny, at some point in your career, and this happened I don't know. At some point in my career, this happened, but people would like literally say, um, you know, they'd be working with you for, for four months on some issue. And then they'd be like, yeah, you know, do you, do you know anyone that could help me with my knee? And I'm like, no, I, you know, have no idea. The knee's confusing, <laughs> you know, like, um, so it's just, it's it's funny. But, um, but yeah, I guess, I guess that's how you get pigeonholed. But, you know, you get known for treating certain populations. So for me, it's part of the overhead athletes and, and uh, obviously shoulders are the number one thing for them. So I guess that's how I got pigeonholed and obviously publishing so much on shoulder-related issues.
1: What are the most common shoulder conditions that you see?
0: So, you know, again, I guess I'd say my, you know, still my greatest population of people that I see are overhead overhead athletes, excuse me. So, um, so what I tend to see in the overhead athlete population is, um, honestly, it's usually just a combination of cumulative eccentric trauma from throwing, because, you know, throwing's not good for you. So, you know, once we get that out of the way, that's like our first educational step with all our clients is, um you know, they say, like, hey, I don't know why my shoulder hurts. And I say, like, I do. It's because you throw a baseball for a living. You know, that's it's that simple. It's not, you know, there's really not much more behind it there. Um, So uh, other than stopping... From throwing a baseball, what can you do? But um, you know, for overhead athletes, they tend to present with a lot of fatigue and then a lot of uh, micro-trauma to the rotator cuff. So the rotator cuff just doesn't function well. So um, you have an inherently loose population. So they have congenital laxity probably already with their joints, which kind of predisposes them to be able to be baseball players to begin with, or overhead athletes in general. So this could be tennis, volleyball, you know, football quarterbacks. Um, I'm trying to think of what you guys do over there. That might that we might be different. Cricket, you guys cricket players, is that, yeah, handball, right, that's another one, <laughs> I, I think, <laughs> water polo, uh, but, uh, you know, anything where you're using your arm overhead, um, uh, you uh, essentially, you you tend to have this inherent uh Inability to have static stability of your shoulder, so you have to have pristine dynamic stability, and nobody does. So you know that's that's what I tend to see now. Diagnosis-wise, if you want to talk diagnosis, I guess we see like a lot of internal impingement. So not articular-sided subacromial or bursal-sided um, impingement, but more internal impingement where the undersurface of the rotator cuff uh, impinges on the superior glenoid um, within the joint. So um, and again that. It has to do with the same mechanism. It has to do with uh, micro-instability. So you get some sort of anterior translation of the joint and then your rotator cuff on the inside chafes on your glenoid as you slide anteriorly. So uh, again, it's yes, do you have a slap tear? Yes, do you have internal impingement? But what you really have is micro-instability. So you still have to work on dynamic stability of the shoulder. So, you know, it's weird. I mean, I'm not a big, I've actually stopped diagnosing, you know, or I shouldn't say that. That sounds weird. But um, I, the emphasis hasn't been on diagnosis as much because I don't want anybody to have surgery. I mean, the second we say diagnosis, we get closer to having a surgery, at least here in the States. You, know, you say the word slap and then you start thinking anchors everywhere and that's that's kind of you know what tends to happen. So for us we just we want to try to avoid that. Because once you start putting a, you know a stabilization procedure on somebody that needs that mobility, their livelihood's at risk. Well, I mean, I, I think, you know, even if we take it outside of just the um, the overhead athlete population, we just talk about everybody in general. Um, if you focus on what they need versus what their diagnosis is, I think oftentimes that will lead your treatment progressions a little bit more. So, um, talking about a, a you know few other populations, I would say um, you know the CrossFit world is very big with us here in the states, and I think it's getting bigger internationally as well. But you know CrossFit, nothing wrong with CrossFit. There's you know it's just the exercises they choose tend to be stressful on the shoulder for various reasons. So um, you know you could say what you want about it. I'm, I'm CrossFit friendly, but um, you know they tend to choose exercises that need a lot of overhead mobility and overhead stabilization and and, and clean mobility. But the problem is, is 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 that population and even the sedentary office worker. Like so, if we really talk about the spectrum of people here, that they tend to um, lose the proper amount of mobility. So, you know, what I tend to see in most of my people is that they've lost overhead elevation probably as one of their, you know, key indicators that I see is they lost overhead elevation. And again, that could be capsular, that could be soft tissue, that just could be alignment and positioning with their thorax and their scapular positioning. Uh, But they've lost the ability to go all the way overhead, yet they choose to do things during the day that require overhead mobility. So... And essentially, I ask them what they do and then they you know, they show me like maybe they're overhead squatting or they're snatching or you know, they're doing something on a pull-up bar and then I ask them to just elevate their arm and when they have 150 degrees of elevation, I ask them, well, how do you think that happens? You know, like there's, there's a disconnect here, you know, how are you getting to that position? There has to be a path of least resistance and something that's taken a beating here and it tends to be the shoulder. So getting back to your question that I think you asked like 10 minutes ago now, um, I, I think what it comes down to here is that, again, you could say that somebody has impingement or they have rotator cuff, whatever, tendonitis, whatever it may be as a diagnosis, but if you don't improve their movement quality and their ability to use their arm in the position that they want to use it in, you're, you're never going to have a positive effect. You may have like a quick three-day transient improvement in symptoms, but you're not going to have a long-lasting improvement in their in their functional Outcomes. The first thing we do is obviously is we work on, you know, in in the states at least here. And I apologize. I'm sure you guys are similar, but our our um our educational path. A lot of people, right? The the concept we talk about is it mobility before stability, or some people then argue is maybe it's stability before mobility because you know maybe the mobility is just a motor control issue. So we have this whole concept. But I always say it's neither. I say it's alignment before mobility before stability. So. You know, for example, let's say you have somebody that, you know, again, works at a desk all day and have a, you know extreme amount of thoracic. Yeah, exactly. We both just sat up on video, which you guys can't see right now. Uh, but they have extreme thoracic kyphosis and then anterior tilt of their scaps and protraction. Um, they, they just have this terrible position, and then they lost overhead elevation. Well, I can hammer the capsule. I can work on the soft tissue of the shoulder all day. But if I don't address their alignment and their thoracic position, their ribcage position, their scap position, then I'm wasting my time. So we work on alignment first. And that just really depends on what it is. That might be manual therapy on the thorax. It might be some rib positioning things. It could be scapular. It could be soft tissue. Um, So we do a lot of manual therapy to get their alignment and then their mobility going. So we do a lot of soft tissue techniques. We do a lot of different um, um, just uh, ways to um, help the tissue reduce tone or maybe increase length or decrease the density contractures that may have in there before we start hammering on them. If you go in straight... If you go straight into just torquing the joint, oftentimes you're going to stretch what doesn't need to be stretched instead of what really does, and then you've created another issue right there. So you're just jamming them up into shoulder elevation, but that's not their main issue. You're just going to further increase their symptoms because you're you're increasing mobility in an area that is probably already lax instead of focusing on the right thing. So um, so yes, yeah, so we'll we'll hammer the mobility. We'll get them we'll get them in good alignment first. We'll, we'll get the mobility going with soft tissue work, um, and then we'll we'll try to strengthen that um, new position and try to really uh, increase their, their positional tolerance there by doing the right exercises, um, that we use a combination of both strengthening and then dynamic stabilization techniques. Um, and again, if you, it, to me, that's the recipe. It's alignment, mobility, strength, and then stability. That's kind of the four. If you miss one, I think um, you'll get good outcomes, but you won't get good long-term outcomes. I, I'm still a big believer that um, we need baseline strength. Um, and I think we're, we're getting too fancy in our professions here, and we sh- we're starting to, to confuse the word, I guess, function. Uh, we're starting to use that a little bit different here. And, and there's a, a trend towards trying to get away from exercises that aren't functional. Um, and, and to me, I, you know, I, I get it. I see that. I think there's, you need to have functional exercises. But I also believe that you have to have baseline strength first. So, to me, like for example, side-lying external rotation for the shoulder is still one of our primary, you know, efficient exercises that we do because everybody's weak in that pattern. So, we have to increase their external rotation, their posterior cuff strength. And if I jumped right to a functional activity, the, the brain, the motor control pattern, the neuromuscular control of that is all, it, it, it's, it's too much for that to handle right there. I can't, I can't use the shoulder in a functional pattern if it doesn't have the baseline strength yet. Or I can, but it's going to take that path of least resistance again that we talked about earlier and develop some compensatory patterns that we don't want. So to me, I want baseline strength first. And I think we've skipped that step lately in the last kind of generation of people coming out. Um, the, the new grads coming out, you know, I, I should, I'll preface this, I guess, with saying no offense and then add um, they really need to get better. But the, the new grads coming out uh, are so worried about all these, um, these techniques and these advanced things. They're all going through, you know, PRI certifications, DNS certifications, using the FMS system. All that stuff's great, but they have no idea how to treat a shoulder. So they're, they're focusing too much on, like, the, the icing and not on the cake. You know, they need to, you know, get that baseline first. So for me, we have to establish baseline strength because a weak muscle can't stabilize. So, you know, once we get that baseline strength going with just, again, you know, the plain, boring, isotonic exercises that you may use that um, are designed for a specific reason. So, you know, we've, we've researched all these exercises, like the prone exercises uh, for scap control and the rotator cuff. We've done that for a reason. We're not just looking for the exercises that get the highest amount of, of rotator cuff or scapula EMG, but also the ratios that we're looking for. So, maybe something that gets a lot of low trap and reduces the amount of upper trap activity for example if that's what we're looking for. So we have to kind of groove that pattern by getting a little stronger first and then we transition to the more functional patterns over time. So um, I I think a lot of people again just jump right to the functional pattern because it's cool, it looks better on YouTube um, and they just want to kind of get there faster in that position. But when again you don't have that baseline strength you're going to probably use some poor movement pattern to get there because the, the brain and the human body is really, really good at tricking us and getting from point A to point B. So it's going to get to point B. It's, it's, it's our job to make sure it gets there as efficiently as possible. I should say, too, it's not that, you know, you, you also have to be careful not to just get stuck in that phase, too, which is another Common error in the physical therapy field, I think, is there is a next progression to that. So for me, I, I jump to the functional stage rather quickly, but I don't skip steps. I think that's the important concept. And you know, people aren't paying me to watch them do sideline external rotation, so we don't we don't do that a lot with me. But I may do it and with my manual resistance, so I can feel their strength, I can feel their improvement, I can feel how smooth they are, I can feel if there's some jerkiness, I can I can add some rhythmic stabilizations to the technique to kind of just see how well they're stabilizing. So um, there's ways to do it, but um, you have to have the basics, but you also then have to have the progression as well. So um, I don't want to come across as saying you don't want the the advanced stuff. You do, and you need that stuff, but you definitely, um, you just, you have to make sure you're getting the basics as well. Uh, Well, I guess it's such a broad uh, topic, I guess. Um, Yeah, no, I I like it. That's uh, that's what you do. I like it. I think function to everybody means something different. So um, my functional exercise depends on the person. So oftentimes it's just using the extremity in the position that they're going to be using it all day because we often exercise in mid-range motion or safe areas right you have to then exercise in maybe disadvantageous areas but if that's gonna be their functional area you're gonna get there so um, you know, depending on what you do I try to simulate some of those those movements and patterns that you'll do um, that you'll do uh, during your activity whether it be work or sport or whatever it may be we try to simulate that a little bit Um, in general obviously Going back to basics, even with just like PNF patterns, with you know D two and D one patterns, I tend to use D two more than D one. But using the the PNF based patterns, I think if if you don't fully you know have a good, if you don't have like a good functional goal for your person right there in front of you, I think you could use stuff like D D two PNF patterns. I think are very applicable for the shoulder. I think that's a pretty functional activity. But again, it's not just doing that on the table. It's maybe getting them in you know different positions, so we may start that supine, we might, we might do that tall kneeling, we'll progress to half kneeling, they might do it in a, in a split squat position, you know, so it really just depends on, on getting them where they are, but it's not just the shoulder, it's getting their body in that functional position too. So, you know, they have to be able to control their thorax, their lumbopelvic area, and have good stabilization there while they're performing their upper extremity tasks for them to truly, you know, you know, call it a functional task. I do a talk on corrective exercises, and I, um, I did a Google search for that, and I showed, like, the top five pictures that come up for corrective exercises, and they all require a stability ball. You know, so it's funny. It's like Google thinks that a corrective exercise you must have a stability ball. So it's it's like doing a uh, it's like doing bench press while lying on a physio ball, which is you know rather in you know insane and probably a, quite a bit of a liability uh, concern if that ball ever pops. But um, uh, but you know it's it's not about just throwing a, a big Swiss ball underneath someone and calling that a functional exercise. It has to be functional to them. So unless you you press, you do a horizontal pressing movement on an unstable surface for a living, then that's not a very functional exercise for you.
1: Nice. So it's way more important to listen to your patient's needs?
0: Exactly. They're not, they're, they're not paying you to uh, force feed uh, evidence-based treatment down their throat. They're paying you to feel better and move better.
1: How have you seen the progression of research in shoulders?
0: I still think shoulder, for whatever reason, um, has probably been the most heavily researched over the last, I don't know, four decades even. Um, if you really think about like, where we are with hips as a good example right now, hips are where shoulders were almost in the 80s um, you know when they started doing uh, scopes in the shoulder in the 80s we're starting to do scopes more now in the in the 2000s and 2010s I guess um, so shoulders been you know it's probably because people like the shoulder more it's you know people injure the shoulder more but our, our evolution of the shoulder continues to, to evolve over time um, what I've started doing with my personal practice is just get more specific to certain niches and what I'm finding with shoulders is that you really can't compare you know two different populations and try to have an established norm for everybody in the world. You know, so the baseball player concept is where we, you know, often draw that conclusion from because they're such anomalies, you know, they're the outliers. So um, they have adaptations to their shoulder that are very specific to what they do for a living. So um, if you don't understand that, if you don't understand the specific adaptations to the activity that you're doing, you're going to treat them wrong. You know, so the example with the overhead athlete then obviously is just on their throwing side. They tend to gain more external rotation, and they have a subsequent loss of internal rotation. So you can see this really on anyone that throws. So on myself, I have that same limitation, but it's it's uncanny that the total rotational range of motion is similar. So in the past ten. 15 years ago we just said oh wow everybody that's injured has a loss of internal rotation but what we're finding is like oh everyone that's not injured also has a loss of internal (laughs) rotation so that's an adaptation to it so we spent a decade really torquing everybody into internal rotation and I think that made everybody worse so um, you know so what I'm trying to do in terms of research and trying to you know help with that is to establish that there's different norms for different people based on their adaptations so you know you can't treat everybody the same Um, you know, it's just, it's different in that fashion. So I think to me that's the next wave of research that we're going to start seeing with the shoulder. I think we get the anatomy. I think you know, it's pretty good. I don't think we're going to find another ligament or anything like that that's just going to magically appear in the shoulder like I don't think we're going to we're going to have a big understanding of that. I think the the future for us is we're going to start uh realizing that different people have to use their shoulders in different patterns and we're going to start having a little bit more unique kind of treatment approaches and evaluation approaches to those specific people. Um, I think, to me, that's the future. And we're going to see that with all the different joints, but it's not going to be established norms for an entire population. You have to understand the subtle differences between the different ones. I'd say that's the general. I mean, I think the other area that we still need to get better at is the biceps, though. Um, we don't understand why people get so much biceps pain. And um, unfortunately, we're starting to do um, 10 ADCs more, um, you know, where we're just saying, like, well, we don't know why it hurts, so let's just cut it off, <laughs> you know, and that's probably, you know, on, if you write that down on a piece of paper and put it in an envelope and then in 20 years open up that envelope and be like, oh, that, that's what we were doing? That's Yeah, that sounds weird. You know, we just said it hurts. Let's cut it. That's crazy. Um, so um, I don't know. I think we need to get better at that. But, um, you know, that, that would be the two areas that I say that we should all be uh, kind of working towards. The best place for me is just my main website, which is just my name, just MikeReinold.com. Um, I've, been, I've been writing that for, um, wow. I mean, yeah, I just started trying to add up the years there. So, but seven, eight years, and really up until we opened up Champion a year ago, I was doing about two articles a week. I slowed down a little bit with Champion there. I'm maybe about one a week, but I've done about you know almost two articles a week for um, seven, eight years. So, um, there's lots, um, there's lots of doing. You can see the evolution of my writing style as well as you uh, go back pretty deep in there. But um, lots of great resources there. I mean, I have a ton of free articles on there. Um, you know, all my educational products are kind of linked through there. So, so um, I have a bunch of stuff for the shoulder and overhead athletes and, um, you know, various, you know, other things that, that are on there. But that's essentially my hub, and um, I won't even give you anything more than that because that'll give you months of stuff to do there. So just go to MikeRinald.com and check it out, and I guess that that would be your starting point.
1: Mike, it's been great to talk with you today. Thank you very much.
0: Yeah, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Um, you know, like I said at the beginning, it's you know an honor to be involved. You know, great website. So um, happy to help. Happy to help the readers and, and listeners and hope this was uh, uh, educational for everyone.